Chapter 7 of The Heart of the Ancient Wood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Intimates After this experience, Miranda felt herself initiated, as she had so longed to be, into the full fellowship of the folk of the ancient wood, Almost every day Kroof came prowling about the edges of the clearing. Miranda was sure to catch sight of her before long and rushed to her with joyous caresses. Farther than a few steps into the open the big bear would not come, having no desire to cultivate Kirsty or the cabin or the cattle or aught that appertained to civilization. But Kirsty, after watching from a courteous distance a few of these strange interviews, wisely gave the child a little more latitude. Miranda was permitted to go a certain fixed distance into the wood, but never so far as quite to lose sight of the cabin, and this permission was only for such times as she was with Kroof. Kirsty knew something about wild animals, and she knew that the black bear, when it formed an attachment, was inalienably and uncalculatingly loyal to it. As sometimes happens in an affection which runs counter to the lines of kinship, Kroof seemed more passionately devoted to the child than she had been to her own cub. She would gaze with eyes of rapture, her mouth hanging half open in foolish fondness, while Miranda, playing about her, acquired innumerable secrets of forest lore. Whatsoever Miranda wanted her to do, she would strive to do, as soon as she could make out what it was, for in truth Miranda's speech, though very pleasant to her ear, was not very intelligible to her brain. On one point, however, she was inflexible. Perhaps for a distance of thrice her own length she would follow Miranda out into the clearing, but farther than that she would not go. Persuasions, petulance, argument, tears. Miranda tried them all, but in vain. When Miranda tried going behind and pushing, or going in front and pulling, the beast liked it, and her eyes would blink humorously, but her mind was made up. This obstinacy, so disappointing to Miranda, met with Kirsty's unqualified but unexpressed approval. She did not want Kroof's ponderous bulk hanging about the house or loafing around and getting in the way when she was at work in the fields. Though Kroof was averse to civilization, she was at the same time sagacious enough to see that she could not have Miranda always with her in the woods. She knew very well that the tall woman with red on her head was a very superior and mysterious kind of animal, and that Miranda was her cub, a most superior kind of cub, and always to be regarded with a secret awe, but still a cub and belonging to the tall woman. Therefore she was not aggrieved when she found that she could not have Miranda with her in the woods for more than an hour or two at a time. In that hour or two, however, much could be done, and Kroof tried to teach Miranda many things which it is held good to know among the folk of the ancient wood. She would sniff at the mould and dig up sweet-smelling roots, and Miranda, observing the stems and leaves of them, soon came to know all the edible roots of the neighbourhood. Kroof showed her also the delicate dewberry, the hauntingly delicious capillaire, hidden under its trailing vines, the insipidly sweet Indian pear, and the harmless but rather cotton-woolly partridge-berry, and she taught her to shun the tempting purple fruit of the trillium, as well as the deadly snake-berry. The blueberry, deer alike to bears and men, did not grow in the heavy-timbered forest. 
but Miranda had known that fruit well from those earliest days in the settlement, when she had so often stained her mouth with blueberry pie. As for the scarlet clusters of the pigeonberry carpeting the hillocks of the pasture, Miranda needed no teaching from Kroof to know that these were good. Then there were all sorts of forest fungi, of many shapes and colors, white, pink, delicate yellow, shining orange covered with warts, creamy, drab, streaky green, and even strong crimson. Toadstools, Miranda called them at first, with indiscriminating dread and aversion. But Kroof taught her better. Some indeed, the red ones and the warty ones in particular, the wise animal would dash to pieces with her paw, and these Miranda understood to be bad. In fact, their very appearance had something ominous in it, and to Miranda's eye they had poison written all over them in big letters. But there was one very white and dainty-looking, sweet-smelling fungus which she would have sworn to as virtuous. As soon as she saw it, she thought of a peculiarly shy mushroom, she loved mushrooms, and ran to pick it up in triumph. But Kroof thrust her aside with such rudeness that she fell over a stump, much offended. Her indignation died away, however, as she saw Kroof tearing and stamping the pale mushrooms to minutest fragments with every mark of loathing. From this Miranda gathered that the beautiful toadstool was a very monster of crime. It was indeed, for it was none other than the deadly Amanita, one small morsel of which would have hushed Miranda into the sleep which does not wake. Though Miranda was safe under Kroof's tutelage, it was perhaps just as well for her at that period of her youth that she was forbidden to stray from the clearing, for there was indeed one tribe among the folk of the wood against whose anger Kroof's protection would have very little availed. Had Miranda gone roaming, she and Kroof, they might have found a bee-tree. It is doubtful if Kroof's sagacity would have told her that Miranda's skin was not adequate to an enterprise against bee-trees. The zealous bear would have probably wanted honey for the child, and the result would have been such as to shake Kirsty's confidence in Kroof's judgment. There were, however, several well-inhabited ant-logs in that narrow circuit which Miranda was allowed to tread, and on a certain afternoon Kroof discovered one of these. She was much pleased. Here was a chance to show Miranda something very nice and very good for her health. Having attracted the child's attention, she ripped the rotten log to its heart and began licking up the swarming insects and plump white larvae together. Here was a treat, but the incomprehensible Miranda, with a shuddering scream, ran away. Kroof was bewildered. She finished the ants, however, while she was about it, whereafter she was called upon to hear a long lecture from Miranda, to the effect that ants were not good to eat, and that it was very cruel to tear open their nests and steal their eggs. Of course, as Kroof did not at all understand what she was driving at, there was no room for an argument, which, considering the points involved, is much to be regretted. Though Miranda had now, so to speak, the freedom of the wood, she was not really intimate with any of the furtive folk, saving only, of course, the irrepressible squirrels who lived in the cabin roof. She saw the wild creatures now very close at hand, and they went about their business under her eye without concern. They realized that it was no use trying with her their game of invisibility, no matter how perfect their stillness, no matter how absolutely they made themselves one with their surroundings, they felt her clear, unwavering, friendly eyes look them through and through. This was at first a troubling mystery to them. Who was this youngling? For youth betrays itself even to the most primitive perceptions. 
who for all her youth set their traditions and elaborate devices so easily at naught their instincts told them however that she was no foe to the weakest of them and so they let her see them at their affairs unabashed though avoiding her with a kind of careful awe proof too they all avoided but with a difference they knew that she was not averse to an occasional meal of flesh meat but that she would not greatly trouble herself in pursuit of it all they had to do these lesser folk of the wood was to keep at a safe distance from the sweep of her mighty paw and they felt at ease in her neighbourhood all but the hare he knew that kroof considered him and his long-eared children a special delicacy well worth the effort of a bear miranda wondered why she could never see anything of the hare when she was out with kroof she did see him sometimes indeed but always at a distance and for an instant only on these occasions Kroof did not see him at all, and Miranda soon came to realize that she could see more clearly than even the furtive folk themselves. They could hide themselves from each other by stillness and by self-effacement, but Miranda's eyes always inexorably distinguished the ruddy fox from the yellow-brown rotten log on which he flattened himself. She instantly differentiated the moveless nuthatch from the knot on the trunk, the squatting grouse from the lichened stone the wood mouse from the curled brown leaf, the crouching wild cat from the mottled branch. Consequently, the furtive folk gradually began to pay her the tribute of ignoring her, which meant that they trusted her to let them alone. They kept their reserve, but under her interested scrutiny, the nuthatch would walk up the rough-barked pine trunk and pick insects out from under the grey scales, the golden-winged woodpecker would hunt down the fat white grubs which he delighted in and hammer sharply on the dead wood a few feet above her head the slim brown stoat would chase beetles among the tree roots untroubled by her discreet proximity the beruffed cock grouse would drum from the top of his stump till the air was full of the soft thunder of his vauntings and his half-grown brood would dust themselves in the deserted ant-hill in the sunniest corner of the clearing only the pair of crows which seeing great opportunities about the reoccupied clearing had taken up their dwelling in the top of a tall spruce close behind the cabin held suspiciously aloof from miranda they often talked her over in harsh tones that jarred the ancient stillness and they considered her intimacy with Kroof altogether contrary to the order of things. Being themselves exemplars of duplicity, they were quite convinced that Miranda had ulterior motives, too deep for them to fathom, and they therefore respected her immensely. But they did not trust her, of course. The shy rainbirds, however, trusted her, and would whistle to each other their long, melancholy calls for telling rain, even though she were standing within a few steps of them and staring at them with all her might and this was a most unheard-of favour on the part of the rainbirds who are too reticent to let themselves be heard when any one is near enough to see them there might be three or four uttering their slow inexpressibly pathetic cadences all around the clearing but kirsty could never catch a glimpse of them though many a time she listened with deep longing in her heart as their remote voices thrilled across the dewy oncoming of the dusk. Miranda saw the panther only once again that year. It was about a month after her meeting with Kroof. She was alone, just upon the edge of the buckwheat field, and peering into the shadowy transparent stillness to see what she could see. What she saw sent her little heart straight up into her mouth. There, not a dozen paces from her lying flat along a fallen tree, was the panther, 
He was staring at her with his eyes half shut. Startled though she was, Miranda's experience with Kruf had made her very self-confident. She stood moveless, staring back into those dangerous half-shut eyes. After a moment or two, the beautiful beast arose and stretched himself with great deliberation, reaching out and digging in his claws as an ordinary cat does when it stretches. At the same time, he yawned prodigiously, so that it seemed to Miranda he would surely split to his ears, and she looked right into his great pink throat. Then he stepped lightly down from the tree on the side farthest from Miranda, and walked away with the air of not wishing to intrude. This same summer, too, so momentous in its events, Miranda first met Wapiti, the delicate antlered buck, and Ganner, the big Canada lynx. Needless to say, they were not in company. One morning, as she sat in a fence corner, absorbed in building a little house of twigs around a sick butterfly, she heard a loud snort just at her elbow. Much startled, she gave a little cry as she looked up and something jumped back from the fence. She saw a bright brown head, crowned with splendid many-pronged antlers, and a pair of large liquid eyes looking at her with mild wonder. "'Oh, you beautiful dear! Did I frighten you?' she cried, knowing the visitor by pictures she had seen, and she poked her little hand through the fence in greeting. The buck seemed very curious about the scarlet ribbon at her neck and eyed it steadily for half a minute. Then he came close up to the fence again and sniffed her hand with his fine black nostrils, opening and closing them sensitively. He let her stroke his smooth muzzle and held his head quite still under the caressing of her hand. Then some unusual sound caught his ear. It was Kirsty hoeing potatoes nearby and presently the furrow she was following brought her into view behind the corner of the barn. The scarlet kerchief on her hair flamed hotly in the sun. The buck raised his head high and stared, and finally seemed to decide that the apparition was a hostile one. With a snort and an impatient stamp of his polished hoof, he wheeled about and trotted off into the wood. Her introduction to Ganner the lynx was under less gracious auspices. Michael, the calf, who had been growing excellently all summer, was kept tethered during the daytime to a stake in a corner of the wild grass meadow, about fifty yards from the edge of the forest. A little nearer the cabin was a long thicket of blackberry brakes and elder bushes and wild clematis forming a dense tangle in which Miranda had, with great pains and at the cost of terrific scratches, formed herself a delectable hiding place. Here she would play house, and sometimes take a nap in the hot mornings while her mother would be at work acres away, at the very opposite side of the clearing. One day, about eleven in the morning, Michael was lying at the limit of her tether nearest the cabin, when she saw a strange beast come out of the forest and halt to look at her. The animal was of a greyish, rusty brown, very pale on the belly and neck, and nearly as tall as Michael herself, but its body was curiously short in proportion to the length of its powerful legs. It had a perfectly round face with round, glaring eyes, long, stiff black tufts on the tips of its sharp, pointed ears, and a fierce-looking whitish-brown whisker brushed away, as it were, from under its chin. Its tail was a mere, thick brown stump of a tail, looking as if it had been chopped off short. The creature gazed all around warily, then crouched low, its hind quarters rather higher in the air than its four shoulders, and stepping softly, came straight for Michael. 
Inexperienced as Michael was, she knew that this was nothing less than death itself approaching her. She sprang up, her awkward legs spread wide apart, her whole weight straining on the tether, her eyes rolling white, fixed in horror on the dreadful object. From her throat came a long, shrill bleat of appeal and despair. There was no mistaking that cry. It brought Miranda from her playhouse in an instant. In the next instant she took in the situation. Mother! Mother! She screamed at the top of her voice and flew to the defense of her beloved Michael. The lynx at this unexpected interference stopped short. Miranda did not look formidable, and he was not alarmed by any means, but she looked unusual, and that bit of bright red at her throat might mean something which he did not understand, and there was something not quite natural, something to give him pause in a youngster displaying this reckless courage. For a second or two, therefore, he sat straight up like a cat, considering, and his tufted ears the while very erect, with the strange whiskers under his chin, gave him an air that was fiercely dignified. His hesitation, however, was but for a moment. Satisfied that Miranda did not count, he came on again more swiftly, and Miranda, seeing that she had failed to frighten him away, just flung her arms around Michael's neck and screamed. The scream should have reached Kirsty's ear across the whole breadth of the clearing, but a flaw of wind carried it away, and the cabin intervened to dull its edge. Other ears than Kirsty's, however, had heard it, heard to and understood Michael's bleating. The black and white cow was far away in another pasture. Kirsty saw her running frantically up and down along the fence and thought the flies were tormenting her. But just behind the thicket lay the two steers, bright and star, contemplatively chewing their midday cud. Both had risen heavily to their feet at Michael's first appeal. As Miranda's scream rang out, Bright's sorrel head appeared around the corner of the thicket, anxious to investigate. He stopped at sight of Ganner, held his muzzle high in air, snorted loudly, and shook his head with a great show of valor. Immediately after him came Star, the black and white brindle, but of a different temper was he. The moment his eyes fell upon Michael's foe and Miranda's, down went his long, straight horns, up went his brindled tail, and with a bellow of rage he charged. The gaunt steer was an antagonist whom Ganner had no stomach to face. With an angry snarl which showed Miranda a terrifying set of white teeth in a very red mouth, he turned his stump of a tail laid flat his tufted ears and made for the forest with long, splendid leaps, his exaggerated hind legs seeming to volley him forward like a ball. In about five seconds he was out of sight among the trees, and Star, snorting and switching his tail, stood pawing the turf haughtily in front of Miranda and Michael. It was Miranda who named the big lynx Ganner that day, because, as she told her mother afterward, that was what he said when Star came and drove him away. End of chapter 7